0: Good morning. This morning, Luke chapter 16, a a parable of Jesus Christ about heaven, about hell. One that we can learn much from. This morning, I have some questions for you. What master do you serve in life? What are your priorities in life? Are you laying up for yourself treasures in heaven? Or on earth? Is all your effort into enjoying the here and now, the things of this life, are you working for the bread that perishes? Are you creating storehouse after storehouse of goods for yourself? Does your life reflect that it's all about you? Your enjoyment, your kingdom, your will. Have you loved the here and now so much that you've neglected the people right in front of you? Jesus, He gave this parable to deal with such things. He taught us this parable of the rich man in Lazarus to teach us that social status has nothing to do with our standing before God. That being rich, having plenty, having all that you want in life does not mean that you have favor of God in your life. Likewise, if you are poor, the poorest of the poor, this is not evidence that God has left you or forsaken you. This does not bar the doors to heaven. How much we have in this life has nothing to do with whether or not we will inherit the kingdom of God. It may lay a snare for us. It might affect us. It might bring certain struggles into our life. But it is not what justifies. It's not what makes a person right with God. It is not what makes us fit for heaven. The question I have for you this morning is Is your heart with your treasure? Many will claim to know God, claim to be religious, claim to be followers of Christ, claim to have even a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but will worship treasure here on earth. And they'll love what God has made rather than God Himself. And in doing so, they will neglect the love of others. And yet, because they have plenty, And because they enjoy the very best social status, they will believe that they are right with God. That God favors them over others. Many pastors in America will tell you that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in this life. They preach that message that He never does not want that for you. That if you are loved by God, you will have plenty. That if you have the right amount of faith, if you believe it, you can have it. This parable of Jesus Christ this morning will completely obliterate such things. That teaching is a a false teaching. It is a teaching that is from Satan himself. It appeals to our flesh not to the things of God. It has very little to do with Scripture. And as we can see this morning, it is not always God's will for us to be healthy, wealthy, and or prosperous. This parable this morning will blow that thinking to pieces. Here you will see the poorest of the poor, the sickly, the hungry, Inheriting eternal life. Received into heaven, and yet the richest, the wealthiest of men. A man who is healthy and in need of absolutely nothing in life. Receiving an eternity in hell. See, this flips this thinking right on the head. 180 degrees from what is taught in so many pulpits here today That being said before we look at this parable there's something that must be said Righteousness is not found in your poverty or in your riches We in, we see in scripture that there were rich people who God loved Abraham Solomon Joseph of Arimathea, rich people that had received Christ through faith. The the future work of Christ or or the, the, the current work of Jesus Christ. Who by faith were children of the promise. They were counted righteousness. Not because of their wealth or their works, but because of Christ and Christ alone. We also know there's nothing inherently righteous about being poor. That is not the point of Christ in this parable. Being poor, being a victim of circumstances, does not make you righteous. Being oppressed does not make you righteous. Having little, being plagued by sickness does not mean God will show you favor or even mean that you will find mercy in eternity. Both sickness and poverty can be because of sin. Many are poor because they refuse to work. Many are sick because they refuse to practice self-control. We live in a time where if you are a victim, you are more righteous than others. This is just not the case. We live in a time where people teach that God cares more for the victim than for others. But this is not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not that one social status is better than another. It was a rebuke to the religious leaders of Jesus Christ's day. The Pharisees who taught, sorry, the Pharisees who thought they were the most righteous, the best of the best, but Christ, he sought to expose their hypocrisy. The fact that they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They did not know God. Even though of their day, everyone would have said that they were the the most faithful followers of God. But they were faithless. They served the God of money. They did not know God. And their spirit, that pharisaical spirit, it lives on to this day. And so this parable is for the church of Jesus Christ still to this day because The spirit of the Pharisee lives on to this day. In many religions all over the world, they say they know God, and yet they serve themselves. They seek to justify themselves. They are those who who have no saving faith in God and, and might honor God with their lips, but they are not known by Him. And they do not know him. From Jesus' own words, we know that this parable was to deal with such a spirit, with this heart, the heart of a Pharisee. Look with me just up in Luke chapter 16, in verse 13. The previous words of Christ are, are really important for understanding what he's talking about in verses 19 through 31. There, Jesus is giving a teaching, and He says there in verse 13, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And look at verse 14. It's important. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Him. And then he said to them in verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So these men were lovers of money. They ridiculed Jesus for his teaching, and he was blasting holes in this idea that the good things in life, that a good social status in life, that the appearance of righteousness in your life makes you good in the eyes of God. He says there in verse 15 that they justified themselves before men. In other words, they lived lives for everyone to see. They were receiving their glory in the here and now from men. They lived their lives so that others would see how righteous they were, how good they were, how religious they were. And yet Jesus said to them, there in verse 15, He says, God knows your heart. You say you're righteous, you say you're religious, you say that you have the favor of God upon you, but God knows your heart. And the heart of the Pharisee was far from God. And what they long for, that praise of men, that being righteous in the eyes of others, what does Jesus say? It is an abomination in the sight of God. This is exactly the the abomination that this parable is seeking to deal with. This self-justifying, self-reliant spirit that thinks that, that because They have plenty in life. They're better than other people. And that they've received the favor of God, and yet at the same time, their hearts are far from God. This idea that the appearance of righteousness makes you good in the eyes of God. And Jesus now gives a parable in Luke chapter 16 to show this truth. That the best of the best, the richest you can imagine, the one who has their their best life now, can be very, very far from God. Can be nowhere close to a a right relationship with Him. And can inherit eternal hell rather than eternal life. This here was a, a shot across the bow from Jesus Christ. This was a warning to the Pharisees to turn from their self-indulgence, to turn from their love of money, to turn from their self-righteousness, their their self-reliance, their seeking of the approval of men to turn from their empty religion. To repent of such things because hell is the wage of such things. And today, hear me, Christ has the same call for us. In this parable, to forsake empty religion because it's worthless in the eyes of God. Forsake looking righteous for all to see because it's an abomination before God. Repent of your self righteousness because you are not righteous. As scriptures say, none are good, no not one. Of our self reliance, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Repent this morning of looking from glory that comes from man and not glorifying God with your life. This type of religion, it always leads to contempt for other people. It always leads to the heart of partiality. The more righteous you believe you are, the more things you have in life, the more you will look down on those who do not. And if you have no love for God in your heart, ultimately that will lead to no love for others in your life. We see this depicted dramatically in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I hope this morning you learn what Jesus is saying through this parable. It is dramatic in the sense that the richest guys... This is the richest of rich and the poorest of poor, and it would have been completely contrary to the thinking of those who heard it. Let's look at verse 19. In verse 19 it says there, there is a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. So, clothed in purple, a very rare fabric, a rare color, it was difficult to, to make, and and this is saying he daily wore this. This was the clothing of, of princes, of royalty, of the very rich. Not only did Jesus let you know that he was rich because of his attire, fine linen and purple clothing, but also he feasted sumptuously, and this wasn't on a One day of the week occasion, this was every single day. Jesus is letting you know that this man, this rich man, he had the very best food, the very best drinks, the very best clothing, the very best of life every single day of his life. He was a very wealthy man. This was his daily habit. The very best dress, the very best food. This man had all that he ever wanted in life. Everything he desired in life. He was in need of nothing. He was full by earthly standards. Now, for Lazarus, the poor man. First thing to note about him, nothing is said about his faith. And yet we see that he was carried up to heaven. Being poor makes no one righteous. This man was justified by faith alone. There is no other way to inherit eternal life. There are three things that I saw in this text that teach us that. Teach that he is right with God because he's trusted, he's believed God. And it's been counted to him as righteousness. First, his name is Lazarus. Jesus never gives people names in his parables. The only one named in all of his parables is right here. Lazarus. That meaning, that name had a specific meaning. God is my help. Here Jesus take note, he's not speaking of his friend in John chapter 11, Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. This man is a character in a parable. But the fact that Jesus gives him a name gives credence to the idea that he is known by God. His name also, as I said, means God is my help. And lastly, from the text, we see that he was received into heaven. And who is he associated with? Abraham. Abraham, who who is known to the Jews as as the father of many sons, the father of their faith. Galatians 3.6 says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In other words, being received into Abraham's bosom was teaching us that through faith, Lazarus is a son of the promise. One who, like Abraham, believed God and it was crowned to him as righteousness. Now, Lazarus is a man of God. One who trusted in God. And yet, He was very poor. He was lame and he was sick. Look at verse 20. It says there he was a beggar. It says there he was full of sores. And also key, it says he was laid at the gate. So beggar, full of sores or ulcers or boils. And he couldn't get to the gate himself. Someone laid him there so he was... Lame. This man is in rough shape. He's very poor. Sick, full of sores. A lame beggar. Understand the picture that's being painted. A rich man in need of absolutely nothing. And a poor man in desperate need of everything physical in life. Whose only hope, whose only name that he can call on is God. Luke continues about the poor man. Jesus says there in verse 20 sorry verse 21 desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. This is where the this poor man found himself. We cannot truly understand verse 21 without some history behind it. One commentator gives us insight Food was eaten with the hands. So, the first century, food was eaten with your hands. And in very wealthy houses, the hands were cleaned by wiping them with hunks of bread, which were then thrown away. This is what Lazarus was waiting for. So, do you understand? They're eating with their hands, they've got chunks of bread, and they're wiping their hands off after they just ate with them, and then they're throwing the bread off onto the floor. Gross, right? Hunks of bread used to clean dirty hands during eating that's fallen onto a dirty floor, and Lazarus is so hungry, he would have taken these crumbs. He longed for these crumbs. He desired to have these crumbs. Notice that the rich man had so much, all that he needed, that he's, he's wiping his hands with bread. And he doesn't even have the dignity to give Lazarus this desire of his to be fed with his crumbs. Jesus here, he includes a second gross detail, to make sure we know how loathsome the life of Lazarus is. Please understand that's what Jesus is telling you, that Lazarus had a horrible existence here on earth. He says there that the dogs dogs were considered unclean scavengers of the first century. They were not your house pet. They weren't those lovable creatures that we all enjoy in this day, some of us enjoy in this day. The first century dogs were dangerous. They were a public nuisance, they were a nuisance. They were often rabid. Here the dogs, these, these unclean scavengers, they licked Lazarus' sores. This is to tell us that he was completely helpless, and he was in the lowest of low places. In life. Verse 22 says, So it was that the beggar died. This is Lazarus. He's dying. He's carried up by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. These men, two worlds apart. Their lives could not be more different. But they had... This, in common, it is appointed once for a man to die, and then the judgment. Lazarus died, was carried up by angels to Abraham's bosom, to Abraham's chest. This is to say that that he was in intimate fellowship with Abraham. It was a a custom of the first century to, to lay on the chest of another man. It's weird, right? We're not going to we're not going to start that custom. But it but it signified close, intimate fellowship between these two men. So he's carried up into this this fellowship with Abraham to his bosom, to his chest. And in other words, Jesus was saying Lazarus is now enjoying what Abraham enjoys all the riches of Abraham all the inheritance of Abraham all the promise that that was given to Abraham is now given to Lazarus in short Lazarus is in heaven to the hearers it was a shock don't miss this point As they were hanging on the words of Jesus, and he's he's captured their attention through these extreme characters. They're expecting in their heads, as they both died, this rich man is going to heaven. This rich man has the favor of God. This rich man is righteous. This rich man will spend an eternity In Abraham's bosom. But Jesus completely flips it. He twists the story for every single hear to their utter shock. It's the poor man that receives eternal life. Now what would they be thinking? Maybe we can relate to some of their thinking. Maybe you have done some of this type of thinking. God must be angry with him because he's so poor. God must be angry with him to give him such a wretched life. He must have been the greatest sinner in Jerusalem to receive such a miserable existence. His sickness must be because of his sin. His poverty must be because of his sin. Someone in his family has cursed him because of how horrible his existence is. He must have been the worst of the worst. That's what was going through their mind. Most likely, but but Jesus, he, He gives these extremes to illustrate this strong point. That the lowliest, that the worst of the worst, that the least of these, the least here on earth, the most despised, the most disregarded, the largest outcast. The poorest of the poor, the sickest of the sick, they can inherit eternal life. And not only that, he's right there with Abraham. This isn't some far-off distant corner of heaven. This is God bestowing on him all the riches of his beloved Abraham. Lazarus in the company of the father of their faith, Abraham. In the closest possible fellowship you could get, Abraham's bosom. To the hearer, what are they asking? How can this be? It's because heaven is a matter of faith. It's a matter of trust in God. It's a matter of a heart that loves God. This is what matters. A heart that has one master. Albert Barnes makes this point. He says, the narrative is designed to simply show that the possessions of wealth and all the blessings of life could not exempt from death and misery and the lowest condition among mortals may be connected with life and happiness beyond the grave. Two extremes are given. What was their point? To rebuke the self-righteous. To rebuke the heart that is full of partiality. That looks down on the beggar and says you cannot possibly be right with God to rebuke all those who would think that you are too poor, too sick to receive the favor of God. There has to be something wrong with them because they're poor. There has to be some horrendous sin in their life because they are sick. They must lack true faith because they have nothing in this life. If they had faith, they'd have more. This is the rebuke that Christ is giving through this teaching. Lazarus, the poorest of poor, he goes to heaven. But what does it say for the rich man? Again, this would come as an utter shock to the hearers. Everything was about social status in the first century. The richer you were, the more righteous you were. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They they used their their religious standing. They used their, their theology. They used everything for their own gain for filthy lucre. And they were known as the most righteous. And so, to the hearers, what happens to the rich man would be utter shock. It says this in verse 23, says, in being in the torments of Hades, the rich man, he is now in the torments of hell. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. So what can we learn from this verse? The torments of hell, this is not a pleasant place. He does not want to be there. All those nice things of his life, Those earthly treasures, they're all gone. He could not take a single one of them with him. None of the good of this world, none of his wealth of this life was there. Why? Because that's all connected to God. That's all from the Father of lights, who who every good and perfect gift comes from. Those are gifts from the Creator. Those gifts that he neglected. Those gifts that he did not give God his rightful honor, glory, and praise for. In hell, all is left is torments. Notice what's missing from this text. There's no holding place. There's no purgatory. One Lazarus departs and angels carry him into the presence of the Lord. The other breathes his last, no hope of purgatory, no hope of getting out. But what does he find? The torments of hell. And what are the torments? Uh, Utter darkness, flames, Jesus said, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Before we move on, I must say something about this parable. Jesus is teaching us through this parable, and it must not be taken too literal. We must not take it too far. For instance, the, the rich man lifted up his eyes to see heaven, to see Lazarus. And we will see a conversation between Abraham and the rich man. We must ask the question, will this be true of heaven? I think Not. This is an illustration. John MacArthur, he makes this point for us. He says this, people in hell can't see people in heaven. But for the sake of illustration, the tormented rich man in this story allowed to look out of hell into heaven across the impassable gulf for the sake of the point. Though in reality, souls in hell have no access to heaven and souls in heaven have no intrusion from the eyes of those in hell. It is purely a parable. But for the sake of illustration, to help us understand he, that he understands what's going through... Sorry, let me read that again. But for the sake of illustration, to help us understand that he understands what's going through... He is allowed in the story to understand what Lazarus is experiencing and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And There is a point from this parable and we must not take it for, through too far, but let's move on. In verse 24, the rich man, he, he cries out to Abraham. He pleads with Abraham and he says this, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. That he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The fact that he knew him as Father Abraham is teaching us something. This rich man was a Jew. He says, "Father Abraham, He's telling us that this man knew the truth of God's word. He understand that there, there was a, he understood there was a promise. A promise that was to be trusted in. A promise that was to be lived for. The things of God were not foreign to this rich man. He was most likely religious. He most likely went to synagogue on the Sabbath day. He knew the way. But having much treasure in his life, his treasure had his heart. This is where his allegiance of his life was. This is where his treasure was. He knew the way, but he rejected it for the pleasures of temporary life. Now facing the torments of hell, Jesus gives us an image here of what it will be like. The rich man facing the torments of hell, he, he desires relief. We're going to see there's regret in his, in his language. But there is no relief. There is no rest. The unbearable burdens that are are swirling around in his mind are there for eternity. Ever aware of what he has rejected in this life, of the choices that he has made, of the utter anguish of his soul, to which there is no relief. There is no quenching. There is nothing to satisfy that dry, thirsty world of the damned to abraham the rich man he begged for just one drop of cool water on his tongue and this was christ giving us a, a, a metaphor of an image of the anguish of hell and the desperate desire for relief can we even take it in this morning this rich man he he's in spiritual anguish but in hell there is absolutely no relief to be found and abraham lets him know that in verse 25 he says son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise lazarus evil things but now he is comforted and you are tormented he was not in hell because of his riches Remember, Abraham, who speaks to him, was very rich. He was in hell because he knew God. He knew of God. But God did not know him. He would have told you that he loved God, but he showed that he only had love for himself. And this was clearly reflected in the way that he lived his life. Neglect for others. As for relief from eternal hell, there is none to be found. Many will teach you that there, are, there is hope for those who die and go to hell that, that someday God will empty it out. But hear these words of Christ. It's not found Here. There is no relief. There is none to be found. And the God who made us, he made it this way. This is his way. This was his design. This is who he is. This is what he has decided. We all need to take heed this morning and be careful lest we make ourselves an idol. Lest we create an image of God that is not God. This is his hell and this is what he has created. As terrifying as it is, this is the God we worship. Who are we ever to question it or redefine it? Hell is truly frightening. We struggle to dwell on it too long. Most unbelievers refuse to believe in it. Most uh, trying to, to lighten it or to, to take off its sharp edges. One pastor said, if we dwell on it too long, we might go insane. We can barely take it in to our feeble minds. Hell is what it is, hear me this morning, because God is perfect, because God is holy, because God is unlike you. And it's because this is true of God, Hell can be nothing less than it is. And to water it down or to change it is to give people a false hope. Anything other than what hell is is to give people a false hope. Someday God will annihilate you. That's a false hope. Someday, you, yeah, you'll go there and suffer for a while, but He'll let you out someday. That's a false hope. There's purgatory. You'll work off your debt and you'll get to heaven. That's a false hope. This is telling us there is no relief in hell. There is no escape in hell. It is eternal and it is horrible and it is terrifying and there is no second chance after you breathe your last. You desperately need the one way to heaven Jesus Christ because there is no way to be redeemed once you take your last breath because that one drop of water you will long for it for eternity but you will never ever find it and that is the terrifying reality of what Jesus is teaching us in these verses In verse 26, he says, And besides all this, there's been between us and you there a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. This is the reality of all who die in their sins. No relief, no way of escape, a great gulf. Jesus is teaching us there that hell is hell and heaven is heaven. And there's no mixing. There's no leaving one and and finding the other. It's not possible. There's a great chasm that has been fixed. Who fixed it? God did. Is He going to change His mind? He's the God who does not change. He's made a perfect gulf between heaven and hell, and there is no passing from one to the other. There is one life to live. You have one life before you. You have one life to receive Christ. Eternity in heaven, eternity in hell, a gulf between both. If you have no Christ, you will not escape this terrifying future. This rich man, he continues to plead with Abraham. He hates hell so much, the torments are so bad. The absence of everything good is such a reality that this rich man can now not imagine that his family would come there. He says in verses 27 and 28, he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, speaking to Abraham, that you would send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that Lazarus may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Take Stop for a moment and think of the arrogance of this man. He now wants Lazarus to leave heaven and go tell his brothers. He presumes to be able to Have Lazarus still serve him? Or or this beggar, he, he can do whatever I please. Send Lazarus. There's no humility in hell. There's only ever regret of the consequences of their sin. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. I want out of this place. There's no repentance in hell. Only hatred for the fact that they ended up there. Here he presumes to have Lazarus, the poor man, serve him by going and telling his brothers. Abraham responds to him in verse 29. He says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Why does Abraham say this? What is he saying? He's saying that the word of God is sufficient. To say that he has Moses and the prophets is to say that they have the Old Testament. They have the Hebrew Scriptures, and that is enough. They don't need another warning. They have the Scriptures. Read the Old Testament and try not to find the judgment of God in them. Read the Old Testament and try not to find the promise of the coming Messiah in them. They have the Scriptures where they find the words of God that leads to life. They have the Scriptures where faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. They have the Scriptures where the judgment of God is so clear. Abraham responds to the rich man and says, They have those Scriptures. Let them hear them. They are enough, in other words. They've been collecting dust in their house for many, many years. Or they've been neglecting to hear them at the synagogue over and over and over again. They've heard it. They need to hear it again. No need to send Lazarus. They contain the words of eternal life. The Word of God. Let them hear them. Look at the rich man's response in verse 30. He said, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Again, think of the arrogance of this man. The pride that is going on in his heart. The pride that continues even in hell. He corrects Father Abraham. Remember, he's, he's known as the father of all believing Jews. But he tells him how to save people. He presumes to know how to get people to repent. He's telling someone sitting in heaven who's repentant of their sins and is being taught of God how to receive eternal life. It's astonishing. It's arrogance. Abraham responds with a very important verse that Jesus wants us to hear. And we need to keep hearing it over and over again. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. I think many Christians in our day would rebuke Abraham. They would be like the rich man. No, Abraham. Miracles are what we need. If people just see miracles, they would believe. Evidence is what people need. If they would just get more evidence, then they would believe. But what is... Jesus teaching us in this parable, Evidence is not the problem. Not seeing miracles is not our problem. If we saw everyone we knew raised from the dead, we, in our unconverted hearts would still find reasons not to believe. Because what the rich man did not understand is still, even in the depths of hell, he has a sin problem. He has a heart problem. He has all the evidence he needs right in front of him. But yet he's still not as repented. He's still not turned to God in faith. His heart is still far from God. It's not about evidence. There's evidence all around us every single day. And think of all the fairy tales and everything else that the people believe in in this world. They'll believe in absolutely anything. And yet when you have all the substantial evidence that is found in the Word of God, people don't want it. Why? Because by nature we don't want to believe. By nature we love the darkness rather than the light. We'd rather rationalize every miracle away. Maybe they'd be astonished for a minute, but soon they would talk themselves out of why they needed to believe in that miracle in the first place. Because our hearts are dark, we will not believe in Christ Because that ultimately comes with a price. That comes with service to one Master. That comes with submission to His Lordship. That comes with repentance. So what do we need? We need the Scripture. It is the Word of God that crushes the hard heart. It is the Word of God that is what the hardened soul needs most. And if we will not believe it, we'll not believe anything Else, if people will not believe the word of God, they will believe nothing else. The Scriptures, uh, J.C. Ryle, he quoted, saying, "The Scriptures contain all that we need in order to be saved." And if a messenger from a world from the world beyond the grave could add nothing to them, it's not more evidence that is needed in order to make a man repent but more heart and will to make us use what we already know. We don't have an evidence problem. We see God everywhere in this world. His majestic creation from His beautiful inspired Word. We are without excuse. If we have His Word, we have all we need to believe. Abraham said, let us hear those words. The rich man said that if if his brothers were to see someone rise from the dead, they would repent. Abraham said, or the rich man said, that if his brothers were to see someone rise from the dead, they would repent. The question is, would they? John chapter 11. Jesus, he called a man out of the tomb. His name was Lazarus. There, Jesus said he was the resurrection and the life. He proved it to everyone standing there by having a man who was, who laid dead come out. Of the tomb. Did they believe in Him afterwards? Did those who refused Christ believe in Him? No, what did they do? They sought to kill Lazarus. Let's kill the man that He raised from the dead. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. What if that same Jesus that raised Lazarus came back from the dead? Would they believe then? The answer? No! They not only rejected Jesus, but they continued to persecute His apostles and eventually put many of them to death. Who also did many signs and wonders all the evidence that they ever needed was right in front of their face but they had a heart problem they had a sin problem that hated the light and loved the darkness they needed to repent of their sins they needed to trust in the only name under heaven to which they could be saved they needed to be born again they needed a heart transplant because man in His fallen nature, has a rotten, dead, black heart that needs to be taken out and be given a heart of flesh, a heart of light, a new creation in Christ. This is the only way that we will come. And the message from Christ this morning, whether you are rich or poor, you need to come to Him in humble repentance, trusting in His gospel to save you you need no more evidence to believe your sin sick heart can we all acknowledge that this morning our sin sick heart is enough to teach us that we desperately need a Savior that we will all end up where the rich man is Because day and night, our hearts are selfish. Day and night, they they always love the darkness rather than the light. Day and night, they long for the things of this world rather than the glorious God of all creation. Is it not evidence of enough, enough, that because our hearts are desperately sick, that we need a Savior? That we need a crucified Christ That we need a Jesus who died in the place of wretched sinners. A Jesus who took this unimaginable hell on his shoulders. As we finish this morning, this sermon this morning, please do not neglect what Jesus has done on that cross. The eternal torments this no escape, no relief, no rest. The eternal gulf that was fixed, bridged by, by the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, who suffered in your stead. This was your lot. To have no relief for all of eternity. But a blessed Savior bled and died in your place. One who would not have escaped the wrath of God, who would not escape this hell for an eternity, but because of this beautiful savior of ours who faced his, who put his face like flint to a cross where he would endure the justice of God in your place. You now can be in Abraham's bosom for all of eternity. And it is a glorious future. It is a glorious hope. And this morning, as we hear it, how dare we not serve Him with our, all of our lives. We cannot serve two masters. It's Christ or bust. He is worthy. Heaven or hell. I hope this morning you for a moment understood what hell was like. Could it awaken us out of our slumber? For a moment, can you realize what Jesus has done for sinners on the cross? R.C. Sproul said if we knew the realities of hell, we would crawl through glass to get to Jesus Christ. As we finish up, what did, it, what did we learn about hell this morning? There's torments there. There's no relief there. There's no rest there. There's no escape there. And death is it. There's no second chance after you breathe your last. As believers, please let this message break your heart for anyone that would have to spend an eternity there. Let this sermon spur us to good works. That we would not lose focus on the saving method of God. What is it? What do we learn? It's hearing of His Word. Let us not take the rich man's advice and seek for signs and wonders that cannot convert the soul. But instead, let us speak of the realities of hell. Let us speak of the realities of sin and the only way of escape, the good news, the best news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And let us speak it to all those who stand on the precipice of hell and at any moment could lose their lives and find this eternity. May we be obedient as a church to take this Gospel to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to our communities, and to the nations. That is the main message I want you to take away from this this morning. The very last thing I want to quote to you is Charles Spurgeon. He said this, If sinners be damned, at at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees. Imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. Hell is a terrifying reality. Warn those that you care about, warn the world of the wrath that is to come and the good news of Jesus Christ.